How's it going, folks? How's it going? I'm Brother Matthew, and this is Christian Coffee Time, where we sit down together to study the Word of God. And here we are, back at it again, studying the outlaw gospel. <laughs> and it is outlawed in many parts of the world, many parts of the world. If the Bible itself isn't fully completely as a book outlawed, then many uh, portions throughout the Bible are outlawed, banned, restricted, and censored, and we ought to obey God rather than men. If the world doesn't like it, if the world doesn't like the gospel we preach, doesn't like the word of God we preach, then that's their problem. We are the outlaw preachers, preaching the outlaw gospel, and proudly unashamedly standing in the lord standing on his word regardless what the world says and we push back with scripture and uh, the lord is the one that fights for us uh, we don't uh, we don't raise the fist we don't fight back uh, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but are mighty through god to the pulling down of strongholds and uh, as it is the very word of god we must make sure to hold it so as charles spurgeon said the word of god is like a caged lion let it out it'll defend itself we don't have to worry about it and the enemy cannot destroy god's word cannot wipe out god's word that's that's not even going to even remotely be a thing we don't have to worry about that people uh, insist though but uh, but my rights my rights your rights are the same same as the rights of your master when he was here same as the rights of the prophets and the apostles. Our right is to be persecuted, oppressed, arrested, mistreated, uh, all because we stand for the name of the Lord. We were told this would happen. We were not told to pick up arms. We were told to pick up the word of God. And we must continue to be faithful, uh, faithful to him. And so, yeah. All right, so here we are. So we're going to continue on in our study of Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, and we got down to verse 42. So please grab your Bibles, notepads, and pens, and turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, down to verse 20, uh, 42. My coffee hasn't fully kicked in yet, so please bear with me. <laughs> I'm tired. It was a long night. So, okay. All right, so what we're looking at here now is the continuation of the betrayal. The betrayal of Jesus Christ, as we see in Matthew 26. We see that uh, Jesus has told the disciples how they're going to be scattered when this happens, and they insisted, no, it's not going to, because they thought a lot of themselves. They thought an awful lot of themselves. And uh, so we see Jesus is even addressing this. He's like, you, you say you're going to be faithful. <clears throat> you say you're going to be faithful, you're not going to run, you're not going to betray, but you can't even watch with me for one hour. You see see this, you see this, I just want to go over this one more time. Where Peter and all the disciples said, said how they would never be offended, they're not going to run, they're not going to scatter, they're going to stand with the Lord. But uh, we see here, Jesus it tells them he's going to go... Uh, going to go pray and he tells them to watch and pray with him and down in verse 40 at the end of verse 40 jesus addresses them especially peter who is the ringleader of this as peter started it by saying he would never betray and everyone else joined in well we'll never betray either and jesus says what could you not watch with me one hour so 
to all the the Christians who think themselves strong and that uh, they will never betray, they'll never, you know, turn against the Lord in any way. Uh, that that they'll be faithful in everything and just keep that in mind. The last person to brag like that it didn't turn out well. Thank goodness that uh, forgiveness is by grace. So we want to look at this. And uh, so we see again in verse 42, Jesus uh, tells them again in verse 41 to watch and pray the enter not in temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus even brings up the dichotomy. So next time you see someone insisting on the sinless holiness doctrines that you can attain sinlessness, like we had that that uh, heretic uh, trying to spam our group uh, this past week. They've been in a number of times. They keep changing their account. And they coming in and, and saying if you if if you sin, then you're not of God because they misquote and misrepresent uh, that passage in First John. And uh, these people who believe that you can attain sinlessness, that you must be sinless. You, you, you can't sin. If, you, if you're of God, you can never sin. That's not what the Bible says. And Jesus even says it here. Okay? Jesus even says it. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. What does that mean? Well, if we take a look at how Apostle Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, appointed by Christ, taught by Christ, and is teaching the doctrines of Christ, Paul writes Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 is the whole point of this. It's the whole point of this. And as we see, that the dichotomy between the saved spirit and the unsaved flesh. You see, the, the sinless people, people who think that they can attain sinlessness or that they'll never sin again, how deluded do you have to be? So, so I, I don't even understand that. I can't even wrap my brain around that idea. How they can think that. But anyways, they think that. And how, how the flesh is not saved, the spirit is, the spirit is saved. And the flesh wars with our spirit, fights against our spirit, lusts after the spirit, uh, sorry, lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. <clears throat> and you cannot do the things you would. So when we look at these things, we have to understand that when we get born again saved, it's our spirit soul that's saved. Our flesh is not saved. Our flesh is still the sinful flesh and still longs after, lusts after, desires after all the things that went on before you got saved. And your flesh is your number one enemy. <clears throat> You're chained to this mortal coil, and it will fight you on everything. And as Paul says, you cannot do the things you would. The things you want to do, you can't do. The things you don't want to do, you do. Oh, wretched man that I am. And we see, as Paul even finishes Romans chapter 7, it says, So with the mind I serve the law of God, but the flesh I serve the law of sin. So, to all the sinless holiness people in that regard, are you honestly saying that you are better than the Apostle Paul? Do you think yourself actually better than the Apostle Paul? Well, what do you do with these passages? Like Romans 7, or this one, about how the, how the flesh is weak. Now, the context there is to see the flesh is weak. Now, we take a look at verse 41. 
is weak. Weak, infirm, feeble. Um, more feeble, impotent, sick, without strength. That's what that means. Uh, the Greek word asthenes, asthenes, asthenes. So again, you get the uh, Greek and the Hebrew really gives you some deeper understanding regarding the words here. <clears throat> That's the knee. So if we take a look, um, more feeble, impotent, sick, without strength. And uh, with these understandings, we see, though, but the spirit is strengthened by the spirit of God is strong. We stand in the strength of the Lord and our spirits are made uh, are made strong, are made firm, rooted in the Lord, uh, surrounded by, held by, indwelt by the Spirit of the living God. It teaches us all things and that we don't need to worry. But the flesh has not these things, and the flesh is weak, firm, and is feeble regarding the things of the Lord. And the flesh cannot stand up to this, and it falls apart. The flesh worries, fears, doubts, cares, frets. The Spirit does not. So, as we see, Jesus is talking about the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. The spirit wants to watch and pray for the hour. The spirit wants to watch and pray for the hour. The flesh doesn't. The flesh is like, oh, it's been a long day. I just want to go to bed. Can we just have some sleep now? Maybe we could do this later. Do we have to do this now? We see the flesh battles against us and tries to well up the, the, the self-indulgence. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So Jesus tells them again and calls out their nonsense and th thinking that you're strong enough to stand in yourself. You're strong enough to be able to resist temptation things yourself. No, you can't. You can't. And so he calls them out on it by uh, verse 40. I, I just, I'm pointing this up because I've just never seen that before. That, that uh, this connection between Peter and the disciples boasting of themselves against what the Lord says, and then boasting of their own strength, and then Jesus full-on calling them out in verse 40. I never actually noticed that before. So it was just, this is new to me. I just, it's awesome. I love this. That's why I'm going over and over it, and I'm just really nailing it down. So Jesus says, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? You see, he doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't call them out. He doesn't degrade them or any of this kind of thing. He just points out. He just points out a weakness here. You think you can stand in yourself, but you're not able to watch with me one hour. That's all he has to say. That's all he has to say. So you see, he's very, he's very gentle even in this correction. He's very gentle in this correction, helping them to understand that uh, in and of ourselves, we can do nothing. We fall apart constantly by thought, word, and action. We fall apart. We have, we have this, this trinity of oppression. Thought, word, and action of the flesh. The thoughts of the flesh, the words of the flesh, the actions of the flesh is a trinity of oppressions that surrounds us constantly and never lets us go. And then we have the, the added bonus oppression of the enemy on top of that and societal as well on top of all of that so we're really surrounded by what quite a cloud of demonic uh, witnesses and influences 
So we got to be very careful. That is, the Bible says, boast not thine own self. So don't exalt yourself either. So be very careful. Dwell in the Lord. Look to him for your, for your strength in all things. Okay, so let's wrap that up. Now we're down to verse 42. So Jesus just points us out, and he says again in verse 41, Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Okay. Now, in verse 42, he went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And we see earlier in the Gospels where Jesus says, I've not come to do mine own will, but the, but the will of his that sent me. So we must understand this as well in the, the prayers of, the, of Gethsemane, where Jesus is not... He is not, I must say this again, categorically, Jesus is not doubting himself, second-guessing the mission, or, get, or being afraid of going through this, he, uh, 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 asking to not have to go through, uh, through the crucifixion. That's not the topic that he's, that's going on here. He's not saying that. Jesus is God Almighty manifested in the flesh. He has, uh, has no sin. He has not sinned. He, in him is no sin. He did no sin. He knew no sin. He's flawless, perfect. Um, he is God Almighty manifested in the flesh. So we keep that in mind. Jesus can't make mistakes. Jesus cannot fail. Jesus cannot fail. He cannot make mistakes. He cannot sin. Uh, so we must remember these aspects here. So we see the cup. The, the cup here, uh, again, talk, as I mentioned before, about what is coming and about what truly causes him to cry out when he's on the cross. As we see Jesus uh, at that point, what we see is when the sin of the world is placed upon him and the face of the Father was turned away from him. This is what caused him to cry out. He never cried out with the, with the whippings and the beatings and the oppressions and the mockings and even even the crucifixion he did not cry out this is also an important point he never cried out at any of the things that happened as a sheep before his shears is dumb so opened he not his mouth the only time he opened his mouth as when we see and you do the study on that when when the everything went dark everything went dark this is when the sin of the world is being placed upon him and then he cries out because what happens? The face of the Father cannot behold sin. And when Jesus on the cross, the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, when he shed his blood for the atonement of the sins of the world and all of this, and he was giving himself as a sacrifice for all this, and he bore our iniquities, the face of the Father turned from him because his face cannot behold sin, and Jesus cries out. So therefore, putting all these things in here, we see the cup that is truly weighing on him is not the oppression, it's not the torture, it's not the shame and the mockery and the beatings, or even the nails. But is this, the face of the Father being turned from the Son. But look what he says here. If this cup may not pass from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. So we see even in this that he understands, he knows that this must must go through. And but just notice this. 
three times he prays three times he prays three times he prays the same thing so he goes and he prays verse 42 he goes and prays this verse 43 and he came and found them asleep again for their eyes were heavy and he left them he didn't bother them again he left them for their eyes are heavy and he left them and he went away again and prayed the third time saying the same words this is important now you'll notice he prays three times the same thing three times and i was thinking about that why why was he praying the same thing three times talking about how he is he is in agreement he is in unity he that uh, he is uh, come to do the will if we take a look at first john chapter 5 verse 7 for there for there are three that bear record in heaven the father the word and the holy ghost and these three are one all right we go back to colossians galatians ephesians philippians colossians how many of you have to sing that that silly old kids song of the books of the bible song to, to remember where different books are i still have to do that okay so colossians chapter 2 verse 9 for in him regarding jesus in him dwelleth all the fullness of the godhead bodily so jesus going and praying the same thing three times like this the same words three times that this is showing the unity of god that this is the this is the plan of god and it's being mentioned three times to represent the father the word the holy spirit in jesus that this is the plan that the unified plan of god to bring forward this you see that you see that i always kind of wondered about this is praying about that and a while a little while ago and uh but uh, why why pray the same thing three times and we see well three well who's jesus god what is three in representative of god well, we see first john 5 7 colossians 2 9 in him all this and he's just showing he's showing that that the fullness of the godhead this is the plan and that not one part of the godhead is is against this or but we see the unified agreement this is the plan and jesus says amen amen let's do it then <clears throat> so he went the third time saying the same words in verse 45 then cometh he to his disciples <clears throat> and he says to them sleep on now and take your rest behold the hours at hand the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners rise let us be going behold he is at hand that doth betray me and he finishes up this and he comes back and he says all right here we are it's time it's time get yourself ready it's time so what we're going to do is we're going to from here jump back to isaiah chapter 53. <clears throat> isaiah chapter 53. now isaiah chapter 53 by the way is called the forbidden chapter in judaism mentioning this because my uh, older brother 
shared an interesting video. I had seen seen this one before, but uh, it's been a long time since I've seen it, and it's just it's refreshing to see this again. I uh, that uh, there are missionaries and street preachers and evangelists that go over to Israel, specifically to Jerusalem. And they take with them a Hebrew Bible, where they take the Bible, translate it to, it to Hebrew, and they and it contains all the passages. I say that because the he, the actual books in Judaism do not contain all the books. You see, Isaiah chapter 53 in Judaism is called the forbidden passage. That the rabbis, the Pharisees, scribes, all of them, uh, actually teach the people that Isaiah 53 is forbidden. You're not allowed to to read it they emphatically state and stress you're not allowed to read isaiah 53 and you would say well why because of this so when so these street preachers the and these christians go over there and they actually take take this and they open the the book to isaiah 53 and they read isaiah 53 out loud to the people to the jews and they ask them where in the Bible do you do you think this is found? And every one of them thinks it's from the New Testament. And he shows, no, this is the prophet Isaiah. This is Old Testament. This is an Old Testament prophecy by the prophet Isaiah, 750 years before Christ. And it blows their minds. They've never heard this before. And actually, a number of Jews actually get saved. <laughs> From hearing Isaiah 53, because they see that the prophecies were fulfilled, and you can't deny it. It's talking about Jesus. So we're going to look at Isaiah 53 just for a moment. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. I'm just going to break this down just a little bit. So we see the Bible actually tells us what Jesus looked like. Now, unlike the Catholic and Orthodox depictions, which is just ridiculous, he wasn't some sharp-featured Amber Crombie and Finch model. He wasn't. A, he wasn't a white boy. <laughs> Jesus was a, a Jew of Israel, uh, born uh, of Mary. The Spirit of God came upon her, and uh, she was found with child, and she gave birth to Jesus. And he was born in Bethlehem. He was a Jew of Israel, of the you know the olive skin complexion, uh, Middle Eastern. And we also see that he had no form nor comeliness. When we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire. Meaning he he wasn't really anything fancy to look at that's not sacrilegious to say that's what the bible flat out is saying he wasn't fancy to look at he was just an average normal everyday john smith he would just blend right into the crowd there's nothing about him that really stuck out that's what that means also jesus did not have long hair he wasn't a nazarite he was a nazarene but he was not a nazarite he wasn't under the Nazarite vow. He did not uh, have long hair. Uh, so just FYI. All right, so we see there's no beauty that we should desire, desire him. Verse 3. He is despised and rejected of man, man, man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we see the whole point is the laying of iniquity, the dealing of sin. Now what does the Bible say? How is sin dealt with? The blood. It's the blood. What is sprinkled on the altar for the atonement of the sin? Blood. That's the blood of the lamb. The blood of the lamb. Verse 7, he was, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. And he was taken from prison and from judgment. That's Pilate's judgment hall. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked. And with the rich in his death. So we see that the, the, uh, this is referring to the wicked of the, the thieves on each side. He was crucified with a thief on each side. The rich in his death. That's Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Because he had done no violence. Neither was any deceit in his mouth. He did no sin. He knew no sin. In him was no sin. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. Resurrection. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Behold the Lamb of God, which shall take away the sin of the world. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil of the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. So Isaiah chapter 53, a summarization of the, of the arrival and the work, the purpose, the work of the Messiah to come. Isaiah uh, uh, specified uh, the, the arrival, Isaiah 7.14, uh, the virgin birth. He, he specified the identity. Isaiah 9, 6. He's called the mighty God, everlasting father. The child born son given is called the mighty God. And Isaiah specified the work. Isaiah 53, what he'd come to do. So the uh, uh, arrival, identity, work. And we also see location is found by prophet Micah in chapter 5, verse 2 in Bethlehem. So these four, you can actually preach the entirety of the gospel of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament by Isaiah and Micah. There are others you can throw in there as well as Jeremiah and, and others, but uh, these ones are the most notable that, that are used in this. So that's Isaiah 53. So as we see, this is what Jesus is referring to of the, of the, the plan of God. Since before even the foundation of the world, the plan of God. And, uh, and we see the fulfillment of it. Jesus says, it is time. It has come. So, so in all time immemorial, all in infinity past, in the mind of God, this is the plan of God, and his creation of the universe and the world and everything else, then he makes Adam. This is his plan, the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. 
So we see this plan of God of grace and mercy. As he sees all things, he knows all things. And that we see the patience of God, the long-suffering, the patience of God since day one. All the way up through. All the way up through. Finally, we come to this point. Finally, it's time to put the plan of God into play. Verse 46, rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Well, let's look at this. While he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. You know, I, I've always kind of wondered at that. I always kind of wondered at that. We even see in the Gospels where Jesus even says, you know, you, you come out at me as a thief with, with swords and staves. Jesus even pointing this out, the absurdity of it. Because really, think about this. When, when, you, when you think of the name Jesus, as in Jesus Christ of the Bible, what comes to mind? An MMA fighter. <laughs> no. Uh, an antagonist rebel. No. Someone who seeks violence and fighting. No. He's done literally nothing wrong ever in the entirety of his life. Never done anything wrong. He seeks peace. He seeks grace. He seeks mercy. He's a, he heals. He provides. He comforts. He counsels. All he speaks is scripture. He's done literally nothing wrong. Now, so why then do you figure in verse 47 that they did that okay now we got to switch the camera pan the, the camera over and you're looking at the pharisees and the scribes and hedron and all of these and the chief rulers and they're coming to arrest jesus with swords and staves and torches and all the rest of it. they're coming up well why why would they do that well it's it, it's to give an, an impression because um well they actually teach in i, I was trained in uh, my uh, my previous job in uh, security that we would have uh, police come in and train us we wore ballistic armor and we carried handcuffs we did arrests and all this so we had to be trained in uh, the arrest policies and all of this and the one thing that you would do in arrest policy and you're taking down and use of force is clarification uh, so like for example if the person refuses to put a weapon down you would constantly repeat put the weapon down put the weapon down but you would actually specify what kind of weapon it is put it down put it down put it down because the people on the outside looking in they might they may not see the weapon but your constant constant vocalization of this they understand what's going on and they'll be telling you the guy over here he won't put the weapon down and and it, the, the 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 he's they're in trouble so the clarification of what's going on or uh stop resisting stop resisting if other people don't really see the person resisting they'll know that they are and it, so when they recall later if they're questioned they'll say yeah the guy who wouldn't put his weapon down then he wouldn't stop resisting it automatically comes up because you're painting the picture in their mind 
So in, in use of force, vocalization of intent and clarification of what's going on, constantly, constant repeating of it is necessary in this. So when you take a look at this, for example, when all of these are coming out and they're armed, swords and staves and torches and with soldiers and all this coming out, they're coming out as, as to arrest a criminal. So in the mind of any of those who are looking on, they would see it as, quotation marks, a legal arrest of a criminal. And they would think that maybe Jesus did something wrong because look, they got soldiers and staves and swords and all this. They're coming to arrest a criminal. So abuse of power, abuse of force. So they're coming out to arrest him. Now, we see as well in verse 48. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, the same as he, hold him fast. Another question. This begs another question. Why? Why the Judas kiss? Why the Judas kiss? This is an interesting study I did a while back. As I was wondering about this, I just asked myself the question, why? Why did Judas need to point out Jesus with the kiss. Well, again, you need to understand this is a cultural thing. This is just what they did. And as you greet each other at the kiss on the cheek as, as a sign of friendship and all this. And, um, but why did Judas need to point out Jesus? And he says, say, whoever I point out, this is who he is. Why did he, why did he say that? You remember Isaiah 53. Jesus is so plain looking. That he just blends into the crowd and he's easy to forget. And unless you're hanging around with him all the time, you won't know how to identify him. <laughs> That'll preach. That'll preach. You guys think about it. How many professed Christians who don't really spend time with Christ wind up forgetting his identity and confusing him with the Christs of other belief systems. They start thinking, well, the Jesus of Catholics and, and uh, certain charismatics like Co Copeland and all of them, well, no, that, that's Jesus. And they don't understand the differences. These ones may look similar, but they are not him. They are not him. So unless you're hanging around with Christ regularly, you won't know how to identify him. So Judas, because Jesus is very plain looking, needed to point out to the priests and all this, uh, point out which one of the disciples, uh, which one of the people here in this group in Gethsemane is Jesus. You see that? So Judas needed to point him out. Now the Judas kiss. I did a message before where I titled it that. I might I might be uh, retitling this video to The Judas Kiss. The Judas Kiss is an interesting teaching in Scripture. Those who hang around with and, uh, and know so much, but then wind up betraying, wind up turning against. And we see this happen a lot. Uh, people who are professed Christians... They go to church regularly, but then it comes a time where they get mad at God and they turn around and walk away, betray, and they start fighting against the Judas kiss. 
is you acted as a, as a disciple and all this, but when it when things just wouldn't go your way, you get mad at God. You blame Him. Betray Him. You abandon the faith. You stop praying, stop reading your Bible, and you turn your back on Him, and you start trying to take things in your own hand. That's the Judas kiss. The kiss of the betrayer. You betray your Lord and Master, all because things won't go your way. And we see that with Judas, is, is uh, Jesus wouldn't let him have his way regarding the alabaster box. That was just the straw that broke the camel's back. And Judas got mad and went and sought to betray him. 30 pieces of silver. So he points out Jesus to the crowd, not not as a means of, uh, uh, of uh, in an honorable sense, or respect, but points out Jesus to the crowd to mock, to scoff, throwing Jesus to the wolves, throwing Jesus to the wolves, the Judas kiss. There's something really to think about in this. And he says, now, now he that betrayed him gave them a sign saying, whomsoever I shall kiss the same, the same as he behold, hold him fast. Now really think about this just for a moment. You know, of all people standing before the Lord on Judgment Day, you think about certain individuals. You know, Judas is one that I think is going to receive the most punishment. He walked with Christ for three years, completely rejecting the conviction of the Lord. He would not repent of his thievery, even though he saw and knew and understood who Jesus was. He saw the miracles. He saw the, he saw the raising of the dead, the healing of the lepers, the sight to the blind, all of it. He was there for all of the sermons. He knew who Jesus was. And he was even so close to Christ. Now really think about this for a moment. He actually embraced and kissed the cheek of God. And threw him to the wolves. You're so close to Christ, so close to the truth. You're so close to God. You actually kiss his face. And then hand him over to die. Really think about that. Now imagine standing before the Lord on Judgment Day. And being Judas Iscariot, who kissed the cheek of God for 30 pieces of silver, threw him to the wolves. You know, that is a sermon against all of the prosperity preachers. You kiss the face of God for 30 pieces of silver. 
You kiss the face of God and you betray him for money. All you prosperity preachers, you're nothing but a bunch of Judases. That's all you are. Todd White, Bill Johnson, Stephen Furtick, Kenneth Copeland, all the rest of you. You're a bunch of Judases. And you need to repent and believe in the truth or you're going to be standing with Iscariot on that day. I'm telling you that, that the prosperity preachers are nothing but Judases. They, they betray the Lord for money. They kiss his face, make it appear that they love him and they serve him and they follow him. And oh, I'm all about Jesus, 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 and the love of Jesus. The Joel Osteens, all of them. They kiss the face of God and then throw him to the wolves because all they want is the money. They don't care about you. They don't care about your soul. They don't care about you knowing the truth. All they want is your pocketbook. Every last one of them. And they're nothing but a bunch of Judases. That they betray the Lord with the Judas kiss. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. Preaching Christ for money. Bunch of Judases. Not to mention, not to mention, Matthew chapter 4, that everything that the prosperity preacher offers you and tells you, promises you, is the same thing that Satan offered Christ in the wilderness in the temptation. All the riches and the power of this world. But Jesus said, store not up for yourselves treasure on earth. Just saying. Who are you going to listen to? The Judas preachers or Christ? That's just something I just want to throw out there. Give that some thought. What do you think? Jesus Christ came for our sin. Not to give us our best life now. What did Isaiah say? What was the purpose? What was the reason? What was the intent? What was the work? What was the plan of God? Sin. Dealing with sin. To bear our iniquities. To bear our iniquities. He came for our sin. He came to save our souls from hell because of the condemnation of sin. He came to shed his blood and die and be buried and rise again. He came for this purpose, to be the sacrificial atonement for our sins. He did not come to give us a best life now. He did not come for us to, to live in the lap of luxury here. He did not come for your bank account. He did not come for your wallet. He did not come for your closet. He did not come for your car. He didn't come for, for your luxuries. It's not about that. He says in this world, you shall suffer tribulation, that you will be hated of all. Jesus said, forsake all and follow me. He didn't say, but uh, take up my name so that you could be filthy rich. So you can have your best life now. No, that's the gospel of Satan. That's the gospel of hell that, that, that alters the very purpose of the cross and makes it about you and your vanities and luxuries and best life. Now, that's the gospel of hell. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that he came for you because he so loved you because you were lost in sin and he came to bear your iniquities to make the way of salvation for you so you could be born again saved from the condemnation of your sin. That's what it's about. The Judas gospel is, is the whole focus is about you, for you, so you can have a, have a good and powerful and plenteous life. That's the Judas gospel. Tell me I'm wrong.
He that betrayed him gave them a sign. You watch for the signs of the Judases. You watch for the signs. They, they make a big deal about how much they so love Jesus. But how can we examine everything to know where people truly stand, to know what they're actually all about? If you're not studying your Bibles, you're not going to get it. You listen to the doctrine coming out of the mouth. If the doctrine coming out of the mouth, the confession of doctrine that, that they utter, if it does not line up with the word of God, they're a Judas. They're a goat, they're a, goat a wolf, or a rat. And you want to expose them. Expose them as such. Doesn't matter what they say. Doesn't matter how much they say, how much they love Jesus. If the doctrine coming out of their mouth contradicts the word of God, they're dangerous. They're dangerous. And even so, that much more so if they're altering the very gospel of salvation. The gospel of salvation does not line up with the word of God. They're nothing but a devil in a pantsuit. Doesn't matter what good they're saying. It doesn't matter how nice they may seem to appear. It doesn't, you know, you don't just eat the meat, spit the bones out of everything that comes along. It, like I've said before, well, the Pope says nice things once in a while. So, 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 did, so did Buddha, so did Gandhi, says nice things, but are these individuals that we should support, that we should listen to, that we should share their stuff around? Well, because they say some nice things. The Bible says if they go against the Lord, they're to be exposed, that they're to be marked and avoided, that you have nothing to do with them but to correct them, to rebuke them with the truth and pray for their souls. They're not someone you should be listening to, giving, giving your ear to. You're to guard, guard your thoughts, guard your heart, guard that which comes into your life. Don't listen to the Judases. And it, like we see here, even if they come and say in in uh, in verse 49, and forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. Oh, they may hail Christ. They may hail Christ. But it's not the Christ of the Bible that they're hailing. They may say, Master, but he's, tru he's truly not their master, some other, the Christ of their imagination. As they've altered the gospel and they changed God, changed Jesus in their mind to a form that agrees with them. They are their own authority. They override the gospel and they create a God, they create a Christ, they create a cross of their own imagination that agrees with them. Because they can't handle what this says. As Judas could not handle Jesus and had to get rid of him. All because someone says they love Jesus. All because someone is holding a Bible. All because someone is standing on a stage and is wearing fancy clothes and seems to be pointing you in the right direction. You need to be a Berean. You need to examine everything that comes out of the mouth. Take the word of God because you don't want to go in the direction that Judas is pointing because Judas is pointing to the straight to the pit of hell. He's pointing to the broad way which leads to destruction. He's pointing to lies. He's, he's pointing to error. He's pointing, he's pointing to that which is against the Lord. Even though it may look like he's kissing the face of God, it's a kiss of betrayal. Forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. 
Look at this, verse 50. Verse 50. And Jesus said to him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? What are you doing? What are you doing here? Friend, what are you doing here? You know, even a verse like that puts me to shame. Just a couple words like that puts me to shame. This, this sheer masterful level of long-suffering and grace of the love of God. As you see in Scripture, God is not willing that any should perish, but He calls all men everywhere to repentance. You mean like even Judas? Well, look at this. And Jesus says, friend. Now, we do see in the Bible the love of God. That the Lord, the way he, he approaches people, he, he approaches sinners. God who can't stand sin in his presence, who must judge it, he must condemn it, he must deal with it. His anger and his wrath is towards sin, but at the same time, his infinite love and mercy and grace. Jesus, God Almighty manifested in the flesh, just absolutely hates sin. But yet, he sat with the drunkards. He ate and drank with the harlots, with thieves, with blasphemers. He went and he sat with them and ate with them and drank with them. He was a friend of sinners. He was a friend of sinners. Are we? Are we? You see, it's a fault of many a denomination of seclusion, the error of seclusion. I've heard it, I've heard it for many years. I've seen it, I've heard sermons on it. I've seen it put into practice, the cold shoulder to sinners. That we should have nothing to do with them, don't go near them, evil communications, corrupt good manners, which it does, but that they're misinterpreting that. But we shouldn't go near them. We should have nothing to do with them. Cut ourselves off. That that in a sense, the teaching that we are to be like monks in a monastery have nothing to do with the world. Where Jesus went out and sat down at dinner tables with them, talking with them, conversing with them, and teaching his disciples to do the same. Friend of sinners, because who did Christ come to save? But when we start touting ourselves like the Pharisees, cutting ourselves off and refusing to have anything to do with, that's wrong. 
God's not willing that any should perish. Amen. Amen. And look at Jesus says to Judas, friend. Now we do see in the Bible regarding judgment and judging and all these things to call out and expose darkness and sin. Yes. For what purpose? To show them their error so they would repent and be saved. Not to grab them by the scruff of the neck and throw them into hell. But to warn them that this is where they are going and they need to repent and believe the truth. Show them how they're wrong. Show them what they're doing is wrong. Point out the truth. Educate them in the truth so they'd be saved because God wants them to be saved. You better as well. If you have in your heart a, a hellish hatred where you, where you just want them to burn, you just want them to die, you just want them to go, go to the pit of hell, you have not the love of Christ. If you could wish someone to damnation, you have not the spirit of Christ in you. You have a different spirit overcoming you. I'm not saying you're not saved. You have a different spirit controlling you. And you're not looking at them the way the Lord the, the way the Lord does. Jesus looked at Judas in the garden. Judas just led up all of these soldiers to arrest him. They're all standing right there. Jesus knows full well what's going on. He looks Judas square in the eye and he says, Friend. Friend. A friend of sinners. Does that mean we're to make friends with sinners? Did Jesus? Did Jesus teach that? If Jesus taught that, the answer then is yes. For what purpose? Just fellowship? Just to be friends? No. To be friends of sinners for the purpose of pointing to them the way of righteousness. That's what Jesus did. He didn't just sit with them just to hang out and just talk, talk, whatever, talk shop kind of thing. He didn't just do that. The reason he sat with them, he, the reason he befriended them, the reason he hang out with them, he would hang out with them is to show them the way of righteousness. But he did it in such a way. Now, really, really listen in on this one. Jesus did it in such a way that the sinners wanted to hear him out. They wanted to hear him. They wanted to hear him. Give that some thought. He ate with them. He drank with them. He hung out with them. He went to he went to the weddings and the feasts and they sat down to the meals and the dinners and he and he walked and talked with them in such a way that they wanted to hear him out and he called them friend. What are you doing? Jesus says, Friend, wherefore art thou come? What you doing here? What are you doing? implying you know the crowd that's following judas and jesus says friend what, what you doing what you what are you doing here what's all this about that's what that means that's what this means in verse 50 in matthew 26 verse 50 is jesus is the same here the same language as god walking in the garden of eden calling for adam after adam's sin Adam, where art thou? 
Adam, what are you doing? Where are you? What are you doing? What's going on? It's the same language. The same language. And Judas, from this point forward, it is not recorded in any way that Judas said anything else from this point forward to Jesus. The last recorded words of Judas speaking to Jesus was Jesus saying, Hail, Master. And Jesus says, well, what are you doing here? Judas says nothing. Judas says nothing. Now, this is the last point I'm going to make regarding the Judas kiss. The Judas kiss covers uh, a great many different angles on this. But the one that I like to emphasize the most here, that a lot of people aren't aware of, is the Judas kiss is silence. When you say nothing, you don't witness, you don't evangelize, you don't speak up, you don't uh, uh, let, let the people know around you the truth of the Lord. You call him a master. You hail him. You kiss his face. But you say nothing. But you say nothing. You don't witness. You don't share the gospel. You keep it to yourself. And you just live your quiet, private, Christian life. And you don't do anything for the Lord. That's a Judas kiss. I just have to say it. It's my job to say these things. It's my job to point out this kind of stuff. And if the shoe fits, then wear it. Get yourself uh, right before the Lord. Stop being a Judas. Be faithful, unashamed. Speak up. Live for the Lord. Stop betraying him with your silence. Stop betraying him uh, with your refusal to study. Stop betraying him by arguing against the things of righteousness, by trying to insist in your way. Stop betraying him by listening to the false Judas preachers uh, and uh, live for the Lord. Be faithful. Just stand up for the Lord. Speak the truth. Stop being a Judas. All right, let's move on. So here we go. Jesus says, so what are you doing here? What's going on? And Judas had said, the one that I kiss is he. So he goes forward and he kisses the face of Christ. And Jesus says, what are you doing? And all of the soldiers, everybody rush in to arrest him, to arrest Jesus. Now you'll note this is at night. This is done at night. This is illegal, FYI. According to Jewish law, protocol, custom, and legality, this right here is illegal. They're not, not following proper protocol. Then came they and laid their hands on Jesus and took him. They came and they grabbed him. They forced him, chained him up, in verse 51. And behold, one of them, well, this is Peter, which were with Jesus, stretched out his hand, drew his sword, 
and struck a servant of the high priests and smote off his ear. <laughs> now, impulsive Peter. Now, we do see that uh, what is not said in Matthew is said in the other Gospels where Jesus talks about uh, self-defense and that uh, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Now, if you look this up, Jesus is actually talking about actual swords, actual defense. And, we, and I've done a study on this before that the Bible does teach self-defense. The Bible does teach about uh, providing for yourself and your family and all this and about protecting yourself. But there is a strict line. There is a strict line. You see, it's not wrong to defend yourself. It's not wrong to, to, uh, to defend your faith. But as we see, Jesus had told his disciples, for this purpose am I come. I came for this purpose. I came to be betrayed. I came to die and I came to rise again. I came for this. Behold, the hour is at hand. Those that come to betray me into the hands of sinners it is nigh at hand. It, we're here. This is the purpose. And Peter's trying to stop the purpose again. He's not paying attention. You see, Peter drawing a sword for self-defense is not wrong. But the purpose and what he's trying to do here, trying to stop, is wrong. He's not paying attention. He said, I'll never betray you. You did by not staying with the Lord for watching in prayer uh, for one hour. You just betrayed the Lord again by trying uh, to insist on what you think is right. By trying to stop the arrest of Christ. This is supposed to happen, Peter. You're messing up the plan again. You're betraying the Lord again. You see this? You see that? Now Peter stretches out his hand, takes a sword, and swings it and strikes off the ear of the servant. Could you imagine the chaos in the moment? Everyone's yelling. Everyone's freaking out. Everyone is just going nuts. Chaos. God hates chaos. He's not a God of chaos. He's a God of order, peace, and calmness, structure. The Lord uh, stops all of this. Quiets everyone down. He tells Peter, Peter, put up your sword. He who lives by the sword shall die by the sword. That should not be your first impulse. Living by the sword is setting the sword as your first impulse. Your knee-jerk reaction. We are to live by the sword of the word of God. That if we are backed into the corner, if we are, we are forced into the corner and all of this... We are allowed to defend ourselves, but that's the that's our that that's the last thing on the line. That's the last uh, uh, thing that we do. We turn the other cheek. We love our enemy. We don't speak evil of any man. But you are allowed to defend yourself, but that's not to be your first reaction. You see that he who lives by the sword shall die by the sword. So Jesus stops all this, tells Peter to put away his sword and everything. And Jesus, it's not said here in Matthew, but it is said in the other Gospels. He walks over, picks up the ear. 
<laughs> Could you imagine seeing all this? These guys have just come to arrest him like a criminal. And Jesus just walks over, picks up the ear of the servant that's come to arrest him and reattaches his ear to his head. Holds up his ear to his head and God who makes everything knows how to unite all the material of the ear and everything back together, the sinew, the cartilage, the skin, and heals it right back to his ear. There'd be blood down his neck, blood staining his shirt and everything from all of this. But all of a sudden, it, it's just, his ear is back. It wasn't there a moment ago. His ear is back. But there's the blood. It happened. It happened undeniably. It happened. And the Lord healed them. The mercy of God, even upon those that curse him. The mercy of God, the long-suffering, the patience, the grace, and the mercy of God upon those that hate him. He's not willing that any should perish. But the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. There's no conversion by the sword. There's no forced coercion. There's no forced conversion. Unlike some other religions and beliefs in the world. God does not force people to believe. He does not force you to your knees. The goodness of God leads thee to repentance. What we see after the resurrection, many of the priests and the Pharisees also believed on him. There's just a question. Do you think it's possible that a number of the priests and Pharisees that were in the garden this night arresting Jesus, who hauled him back to the, the palace of Caiaphas and beat him and slapped him and spit on him, that these same ones got saved? Jesus showing kindness and mercy and grace and long-suffering and gentleness to them was instrumental as well. says a lot doesn't it really says a lot we have a lot of work to do we're supposed to be christ-like we have a lot of work to do we're so easily agitated we're so easily upset that's right angela even some of the nazis got saved they repented of what they'd done can the Lord even save them? Yes. Is there any sin greater than the blood of Jesus Christ? No. Saul yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter. You know, in a way, you could kind of say, I hate using this because I sound like I'm woke or something, but I'm not. But in, in a way, that you think about it, like a Saul of Tarsus was an early church Nazi. Running around cursing and blaspheming and destroying and torturing and killing and burning down. He got saved. That God can save people I don't like. God can forgive and save people that I don't agree with. God can actually save and then use for his kingdom. Blessed by God. People I don't agree with. Ooh. Mm. You see? 
We're not long-suffering. We're not merciful. We're not gracious. The very fact that we can even hesitate in certain situations to speak to people, witness to people, or, or agree that God could use or save or help certain people, the very fact that we could hesitate goes to show our problem. Jesus called Judas friend. That says everything right there. I could even just end the study right here. And we could just spend the day meditating upon that. How could Jesus call Judas friend? That shows the heart of God. And for all my Calvinist friends who insist on limited atonement, unconditional election, if Judas was specifically created to be hellfire fodder, because you believe that he limited his atonement and God created Judas to go to hell, then why did he call Judas friend? If he was meant for damnation, meant for the fires of hell. Why did Jesus call Judas friend? Look at this. Verse 52. Jesus speaks to Peter and then says Jesus to him, Put up thy, again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? <laughs> Think about this just for a moment. Peter, impulsive Peter, not paying attention, again, not listening, again, insisting in his own his own logic, again, thinks that he needs to defend and protect Jesus. I have a question for you folks. Kind of a multi-pointed question here. Does God need protecting? No. Okay. Does the Bible need protecting? No. Does the Christian faith need protecting? No. Does the church need protecting? No. Why? Well, God doesn't need protecting because, well, he's God. The Bible doesn't need protecting because it's preserved unto all generations by God. The faith doesn't need protecting. The church doesn't need protecting because... Well, we're established forever and the faith cannot be wiped out. So Christians who think that they need to pick up the sword and actually fight against their government and society because, well, they're destroying the faith. No, they're not. Because they can't. You trying to protect the faith is literally no different than Peter in the garden trying to protect Jesus kind of absurd wouldn't you say it doesn't make any sense 
As Jesus says, do you not think that if I so wanted, I could call legions of angels to come down and destroy everything that goes against me? Do you not think I could do that? Stop trying to protect God. <laughs> Rather, protect your walk with Christ and start adjusting your reasoning along the lines of the word of god god doesn't need your protection the church doesn't need your protection the bible doesn't need your protection these things are set and established and cannot be destroyed or wiped out because god said so it doesn't matter how wicked the government gets it doesn't matter how evil the society gets it doesn't matter what comes down the line. It doesn't matter if a man standing up as the Antichrist possessed by Lucifer himself says otherwise. It doesn't matter what any one of them say. We are established forever. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that this must be? How do you think the scriptures will be fulfilled if you're doing this, Peter? The scriptures must be fulfilled. Stop getting in the way of the scriptures. Ooh. One of Christ's last corrections of Peter. Stop getting in the way of scripture. Wow. My mind is just kind of swimming right now, just at the thought of this, just going over this again. How often does this happen? We get in the way of Scripture. We pick up our sword of our logic, our reasoning, our feelings, our ideas, our lives, our control our plans, our desires, our fears, our lusts, we get in the way of the Word of God. We presume, we assume, we control, we get in the way of the Word of God. Instead, we should step back, see what does the Word of God say, and set that forward before us. It, it lights our path. We don't light our path. The word of God lights our path. How shall the scriptures be fulfilled if you're doing this? There is something that we could ask ourselves regularly. Every time we go to do something or say something or think something, ask, ask yourself, how does this fulfill the word of God? How does this bless the word of God? How does this fulfill the word of God? Something to think about. Something really weighty to think about. Verse 55. And in that same hour said Jesus to the multitudes. He turns to all these soldiers and priests and, and everybody come out against him. Verse 55. In that same hour said Jesus to the multitudes. Are you come out as a, against me uh, as a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you laid no hold on me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Now what's not said here in Matthew. Matthew's kind of a summarization. He sticks on some of the main points. 
Uh, we see in John, he goes into a lot more detail on some other things. And that's why you want to read all the Gospels together. And But we do see something, one of my favorite things in the Gospels is Jesus turns to them and he says, Whom seek ye? And they cry out, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am. And they all, every one of them, falls to the ground backwards. It's just like a force just pushes them all over. I am, and they all go over. Now, you just witnessed Jesus reattaching a severed ear. After hearing all of the stories and even witnessing the miracles and the teachings and then and the deity claims all of this. Then he reattaches a severed ear right in front of you. And then he speaks the name of God as a personal claim. He doesn't just say the name of God. He's uttering it as a present claim. As a personal claim that he's saying I am the I am is was what he's meaning by how he responds to them in what he says here when they say we seek Jesus now and he says I am and they all fall over backwards okay why don't you think that that would start to make you question the intentions of the chief priests just 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 a little bit just a little bit do you not think that maybe there might be something to this jesus fella after all and maybe you might think that maybe i'm wrong here do you not think so anyway as jesus says i was with you always i sat daily teaching in the temple you could have arrested me at any time you could have sought sought to arrest sought to arrest me sought to take me any time but you didn't you waited till now till nightfall when no one else is around He's pointing out their sin. He's exposing their sin yet again. And as he says in verse 56, all this is done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. That's Isaiah 53. That's Psalm 22. That's all of it. Jesus said, back in verse 31, look at this. Jesus says back in verse 31, all ye shall be offended because of me this night for the for it is written it is written i will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered it is written and verse 33 peter says oh, i'll never offend, be offended i will never abandon thee and all the disciples said likewise i will not deny thee likewise also said all the disciples Verse 56, Jesus says, All this is done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. 
Every one of them ran away. Every one of them abandoned. Every one of them abandoned. Just as it was written. So you see, folks, you cannot, you cannot oppose the word of God. It will come to pass. It will happen as what it says is what it means. And what it says is going to happen. Regardless whether you like it or not. Regardless what you think. Regardless what you do. You could try to rewrite history. You could try to control and change all society and all the empires. You could do all that you want. It's not going to stop the word of God. What the Lord says is absolute and there's nothing you can do about it. So it's best to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ now and accept him as, as your Lord God and Savior and believe in the word of God now or you're going to later, but it'll be too late. You want to be on the right side when it goes down. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Now, we do see that when... Um, Oppressions do come upon the church. It really separates the goats from the sheep. We also do see that when oppressions and issues and troubles come and those that have scattered that did run. Well, how did the Lord react to the disciples that betrayed him, denied him and ran away? How did the Lord react to them? What did he do about this? He forgave them. There's mercy enough. There's mercy and grace enough that doesn't matter what you do. First John 1 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, the beauty and the long suffering, the grace and mercy of God is what the Lord says. I, I, I love mercy. Not judgment. God doesn't love to judge. He's not looking forward to judging. He doesn't want to have to do that. He loves mercy. I will have mercy. So we see this as well as a, as a great beauty of our Lord. And is that when we see ourselves as the Peters and the other disciples betraying the Lord, getting in the way, messing things up. The Lord will seek to correct us. He didn't disown Peter right here. He, he didn't condemn Peter right here for what he did, try, trying to get in the way of the everything. Rather, he corrected him for what purpose that Peter could get himself right before the Lord. He even told Peter, you will deny me three times. But when you, when you, are, when you repent, I'll meet you in Gethsemane. Sorry, not in Gethsemane, in Galilee. I'll go before you in Galilee. I'll meet you in Galilee. He said, come find me. This is where I am. I'm right here. I'll be waiting. I'll be waiting. And when this is all done, I'm waiting. The long-suffering, the beauty of the Lord. <clears throat> now we get to the hard stuff here. <clears throat> So we're down to verse, at the end of verse 56, all the disciples forsook him and fled. 
Jesus standing all alone here now. Surrounded by wolves. Oh, if only these... The, if only these wolves really understood the danger they're in. And they laid hold of Jesus and led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. This is an illegal council by Jewish law. They're, they were not supposed to do this. They're supposed to wait till daylight with witnesses, and it's supposed to be a public thing. This, uh, uh, these uh, nightfall private secret councils is highly illegal by the Jewish law. But they didn't care. They were law unto themselves. They couldn't care less. Just like every politician and leader nowadays. Nothing's changed. Anyways, they laid hold of Jesus, led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, and where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him afar off. Peter turned around and started skulking back, sneaking back, followed him afar off unto the high priest's palace. And went in and sat with the servants to see the end, to see what was going to happen. So it's night, nighttime, middle of the night. It's, it's cool out and they have little fires around for all the people and the soldiers, everyone else around. You could warm yourself, keep yourself warm. <clears throat> so he goes in with the other people and he's just kind of watching and observing, listening and see what's going on. Verse 59. Now the chief priests and elders and all the councils sought false witnesses against Jesus to put him to death. They had determined, we don't care who he is, what he is, or what's going on, what he says. We don't care that he's innocent. Uh, we need him to die because he's causing problems for our plans. So he has to die. So they can't find a single thing wrong with him. They tried for all the years of the ministry. They tried everything. They couldn't find Jesus if their life depended on it. So now they have to make up full-on lies. Full-on lies. Now the chief priests and elders and all the councils sought false witnesses against Jesus to put him to death. Verse 60, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. Meaning, nothing of anything that they said could be established. There were too many contradictions, too many errors. All, all everything they said didn't line up. And it was obvious, it was clear. And he, even their attempts of having lies fell apart. They couldn't do it. They found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. Did Jesus say that? Did Jesus say, he is able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. Is that what he said? Think about it. If you go back in the text and you, you take a look at this conversation that Jesus is having with the, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests and all of them, <clears throat> And uh, they ask him for a sign. And Je Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll build it in three days. Now, if you take a look, 
the disciples, it says the disciples realized later that Jesus spoke of his body. Understanding that he spoke of his body. Okay, just hold up a moment. If you're talking to someone, okay, place yourself there. You're talking to someone and you say, destroy this temple and I'll build it in three days. And people around you understood that you were talking of yourself. How? How? How could people understand that you were talking about yourself? You're standing in the actual temple of God and you say, destroy this temple built in three days. And they understood that he was speaking of himself. How could they understand that he was speaking of himself? Gestures. 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 So Jesus would have been gesturing, destroy this temple because he's not the author of confusion. He wouldn't, Jesus wouldn't be wanting the people to think that he was implying the actual physical building construct. He wanted the people to understand he was talking about himself because he was giving a prophecy of himself. So he wanted to make sure it was clear and concise and there was no confusion. So he'd be pointing at himself because he's not the author of confusion. So these uh, lewd fellows of the baser sort in verse 61 says this fellow says, I, well, actually, no, no, one thing. I just want to note here in verse 61. Uh, can I ask you folks a question? In your Bibles, in verse 61, or Matthew 26, verse 61, the word fellow. Is the word fellow italicized? Is it? The word, is the word fellow italicized in verse 61? That's important. <clears throat> Because if you go back to the 1600s, when they did uh, the translation of the scriptures uh, from the original Greek and Hebrew into English. Now, if you know anything about actual language translation, you will know that immediate direct translation from one language to another isn't always flowing. excuse me, that there will be uh, issues with that. There'll be some broken sentence structure, uh, broken English in this. So what they did, what the translators did is in uh, the immediate translation to English from the Greek and Hebrew would leave some broken sentence structure. What they would do is they would fit in words. They would add words that flowed with the narrative that didn't change the narrative, didn't change the, uh, the the construct, the content. Uh, but what they did is so that you would know which words were added, they italicized. So the actual italicized words in your Bible were added and are not, and are not from the original manuscripts. So in reading this, same, same as in John chapter 8, verses 24 and 25, uh, they made a mistake in that they should not have put the word he. Because when Jesus says, if you do not believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. They put in, if you do not believe that I am he, but the word he is italicized. That should not be there. Because that's a that's a deity claim right there. He's, he's saying, unless you believe that I'm the I am. Not that I am he, unless you believe that I am. Because ego, emi, the always existing. 
So we see the actual words of the uh, of the actual manuscripts are true, but uh, uh, we got to just keep that in mind regarding the italicized. Because if you note this in verse sixty one, he says, "And they said this, this." They don't say this fellow. They point the finger and says this. That that's a term of degradation, of spite and disgust. They point at Jesus and say, this. They don't say this fellow. They say this. You see that? It's a term of absolute disgust. These lying, blasphemous, wicked, evil children of the devil stand up to lie about Jesus, to, to put him to death because they hate him. And they point the finger, and these demons point at Jesus and say, This. That's what's going on right there. It has that much more of an understanding when you look at it in that way. When you point at someone, you say, and you're, and you're talking to others, and you point at another person and say, This. What does that insinuate? Think about that for a moment. What, do, what, what are you insinuating? It says a lot. This. This said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. No, I didn't. You're completely misunderstanding because you weren't paying attention. Because where's the witnesses to speak otherwise? Where are, the, where are those around? Where is his disciples and everyone else around that saw and heard what he said? That's, that's why they wanted to private. Because they didn't want anyone to kind of come and countermand the false witnesses. This said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses against thee? You're not going to stand up for yourself. You're not going to speak for yourself. You're not going to say anything to any of these claims that come in. You're not going to say anything about it. But Jesus held his peace. Verse 63, he held his peace. Not saying a word. Why? Why isn't Jesus saying anything? Why isn't Jesus saying anything? Well, because the Bible says, answer not a fool according to his folly. Answer not a fool according to his folly. That when the when the wicked rise up, start speaking, ignore them. And they, though they be blind leaders of the blind, they lead themselves into the ditch. If any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. Mark and avoid. Have nothing to do with. Have no fellowship with. The Bible is very clear on this, and Jesus is showing this. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter how they lie about you. Ignore them. Ignore them. Doesn't matter what they say about you. Ignore them. Uh, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, actually, and regarding this kind of context here, was uh, in the Sanhedrin. There was the one fellow named Gamaliel. Gamaliel um, was a doctor of the law, an old man, a doctor of the law, which they all uh, looked up to. He, he said regarding the apostles, he says, be careful what you're doing with these fellows because if they are of God, 
you'll find yourself fighting against God. But if it is of man, it will come to nothing. So if people rise up and are saying things about you, what does the Bible say? To mind your words, mind your actions, and all of these things, because when they speak falsely against you, they will be ashamed to falsely accuse your good works. That the lies will come to nothing. It will come to nothing. The lies uh, of the uh, of the oppressors will fade away in the fog of indifference. Will come to nothing. You don't need to worry about it. But if what they're saying is true, you better get yourself right. Jesus held his peace. Verse 63, Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Okay. Now we're getting somewhere. Now we're cooking. You see, Jesus wasn't going to have anything to say about any of the nonsense and the lies and the misunderstanding all that kind of stuff that they're deliberately twisting just to try to get him in trouble he's not even addressing any of it that's an example for us to keep in mind for for ourselves as well but when someone actually speaks up regarding the actual truth and there's actual substance there okay he says i adjure thee by the living god i command you in the name of god that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. All right. If we look back through the Gospels. Now, I have not yet counted. I don't think I really could count them all. But how many times has Jesus proved it by, by word and deed? Fulfillment of prophecy and all of it. How many times? How many times has he proved who he was? We even see in one other point. I want to go over to John. Take your Bible. Go to John. I believe it's John chapter seven. Yes, John chapter seven. In John chapter seven. We see in verse 27, some people were saying as Jesus was arguing with the Pharisees and all of them. And in verse 27, it says, Howbeit we know this man whence he is, but when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. And Jesus cries out, in verse 20, Then cried Jesus in the temple. He cried out in the temple. To cry out is, is to announce loudly, to proclaim, to cry out. So that everyone can hear him. Of the scribes, the priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the disciples, the multitudes, everyone, everyone, everyone around. Everyone can hear it. Jesus announces to everyone. Because of, rewind the tape, the prophecies. We see the wise men coming. They come to Jerusalem and they say, we come seeking the king. And they know that the king will be born in Bethlehem. And they find out that he was born in Bethlehem. We see uh, John the Baptist, the the uh, the uh, announcer of the Christ, 
pointed him out and everything at the at the river jordan is and do we see jesus fulfilling this with the prophets and prophetesses in in the temple when they brought jesus as a baby and uh, they went around and told everyone that the christ came john the baptist was born and everyone knew that he was he, he was the proclaimer of the christ had come and john points at jesus at jordan in front of all the multitude behold the lamb of god meaning the christ the jesus claiming the names of god proving the power of god proving who he is by multiple multiple uh, ways jesus says in the temple in verse 28 john 7 jesus says you both know me and know whence i am do you understand when you cross reference you pair scripture with scripture you put all of the pieces together do you understand that jesus is flat out saying to all the jews you know who i am you know where i'm from and you know who i am you know what jesus is implying right that the jews all the jews knew full well especially the pharisees and as nicodemus even said we, we know who you are even devils are crying out we know who you are Everyone knew who he was you know who i am you know who i am so we go back to matthew and the and the high priest says i adjure thee by the living god that thou tell us whether thou be the christ the son of god Jesus already told them multiple times. I've already told you, same as I've already told you. You know who I am. Verse 64. Verse 64, Jesus answers. And he says, Thou hast said. Meaning, you said it. Just like you said. You said it. Jesus says to him, Thou hast said. Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Verse 65. Look at this, verse 65. Then the high priest rent his clothes. He rent his clothes saying, he has, spoke, he has spoken blasphemy. So that Jesus says, you said it and you will see me sitting on the right hand of power. And the high priest ripped his clothes as a sign, as a sign of great grief. This is what they were doing, great grief. And he says he's spoken blasphemy. In the other passage, we see the Pharisees picking up stones to stone Jesus. And Jesus says, for what good work do you stone me? They said, not for good work do we stone thee, but because thou being a man makest thyself God. They knew. They understood. They knew what Jesus is saying and implying in all of this. They knew who he was. They knew where he was from. They knew what he was about. And they wanted to kill the God of Israel. They wanted to kill the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because as Stephen says, you've taken up the tabernacle of your God, Moloch, and the star of your God, Ramphan. Because they were servants of other gods. And they were twisting the, the scriptures. They were twisting the law of God to fit their own narrative of their new gods. They were, they were trying to kill the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are trying to kill the God of Israel because they wanted their new gods. They no longer wanted the gods of the, the God of their fathers. They no longer wanted the God of Moses and Elijah. They no longer wanted the God of the prophets. 
They wanted their own. And the high priest says, he spoke in blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now, now ye have heard this his blasphemy. And in verse 66, what think ye? They answered and said, he's guilty of death. The, the law demanded uh, under Jewish law that, uh, that a charge of blasphemy was a death sentence. Capital punishment for blasphemy. Capital punishment for blasphemy. But the thing about it, though, is with such claims, it's not just the fact that you said it, is that there's no evidence, there's no proof, there's nothing to back up what you're saying, and thus proving that you're just being a belligerent blasphemer. But the thing with Jesus, though, you see him claiming the names of God, forgiving sin, raising the dead, healing the sick and the blind and all the rest of it, teaching the word of God flawlessly and, and proclaiming truth and righteousness, and not to mention fulfillment of all the prophecies of, of how he would come, where he would come, what he would do, everything, all the prophets, everything, 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 everything backed it up. So they're jumping to judgment with no searching of any of the evidence so you see an illegal court with an illegal charge with illegal sentencing everything that they're doing is deliberately skewed for the purpose of just to get rid of them get rid of them and now we get to a part that it's actually hard for me to read this it's just you know, as I've said before, I imagine all of heaven being deathly quiet at this point. I That I could imagine almost here the angels of heaven shaking anger and rattling their swords michael the archangel just looking on and just shaking with anger holy anger at what's happening here because look at this in verse 67 oh they said he's guilty of death verse 67 then did they spit in his face and buffeted him, punched him, to slap him. And they smote him with the palms of their hands. They spit in his face and punched him and slapped him. Could you imagine the angels flinching? Every time. And they're just waiting with bated breath, waiting for Jesus to say something that, that would have them rush in and just destroy these children of Satan. But he didn't. But he didn't. Saul of Tarsus spat in the face of God every time he cursed him. Saul of Tarsus, every time he 
persecuted the saints jesus said what you do to others you do to me what you do to others you do to me Saul of Tarsus, by his actions and his life, spat in the face of God, punched and slapped our Lord by his behavior. And Jesus didn't strike him down. Saul of Tarsus killed Christians, would chain them up and drag them off to Jerusalem to be tortured and killed, and God didn't strike him down. These ones actually spat that in his face and punched him and slapped him mocked him and scoffed him and cursed him saying prophesy unto uh, uh, unto us thou christ who is it that smote thee blaspheming and cursing him and he did nothing because i'm not willing that any should perish I'm going to ask you a really difficult question. Do you really, uh, do you think that any of these that actually forked up spit and spat in the face of Jesus and slapped him got saved? How far will the Lord go to save a soul from hell? Who is beyond salvation who is beyond salvation what sin is greater than the blood of jesus christ saying prophesy unto us thou christ who is it that smote thee thou christ the words were even spat out with disgust Verse 69, now Peter sat without in the palace and a damsel, a young, young woman, young girl came up to him saying, thou wast with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied before them all saying, I know not what thou sayest. I don't know what you're talking about. And when he was gone out into the porch, he left that area, went to another uh, porch, another maid, another girl saw him and said unto them that were with the, that were there this fellow was also with jesus of nazareth and again he denied with an oath i do not know the man he, he he swore an oath i promise you i promise you i do not know the man and after a while came unto him they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou art also one of them, for thy speech bereath thee. Because he's speaking in the dialect of the Galilees, the same as Jesus. So he's not from here. And, he's, and everybody knew by the, by the accent of Jesus. Jesus had an accent. And so did his disciples. Because he had an accent. And uh, this would tell them where they're from. And since Peter has the same accent of Jesus and hung out with Jesus, well, it's that they knew by this, this dialect, this language. Your speech betrayeth thee. And he began to curse and swear. He poured out vulgarities 
cursing and swearing. I do not know the man. And immediately the cock crew, just as Jesus said. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. It's a hard thing. We can't presume to really fully understand certain people, things they go through and all this. And, and moments of weakness and fear. We can betray the Lord. We can sin against the Lord. You see, this this section of the story here, what Peter did, is not to... Is, the focus is not the betrayal of Peter. The focus is not what Peter said. It's not that he denied. It's not that he denied with oath. It's not that he denied with cursing and swearing. With vulgarities. That's not the point. The point is not the fall. The point is not the mud. The point is not the sin. You know what the point is? The point is, as scripture says, godly sorrow leadeth thee to repentance. The point of the whole story is the ending of verse 75. And he went out and wept bitterly. That. Tears are a language that God understands. As an old song says. You see, there's the weeping of Judas. As Judas saw what happened and he went back and he threw the money at the at, at the Sanhedrin and he ran out and he was sorry and all this. Everything happened here, but he wasn't sorry for his sin. He wept over the issue, the problem he caused, but not for the sin. He never repented for his sin. Esau wept over the, that he was uh, tricked out of the birthright and everything that happened here is sorry for what he did, uh, did and all this sorry for the problem, but not sorry for his sin. That's why God, God says, but Esau's repentance I hated. You see, there's godly sorrow and then there's false sorrow. There's true repentance and then there's false repentance. Peter here is showing true repentance because he wept bitterly, begging the mercy and the forgiveness of God. And what do we see the Lord doing? Forgiving him. Forgiving him. How many times did Peter betray? How many times did Jesus say, Peter, do you love me? He went out and wept bitterly. Repentance. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now be merciful to their unrighteousness and their iniquities and the sins and their iniquities I'll remember no more. And if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. It doesn't matter how big the pig pen is, O prodigal. It doesn't matter what you've done. It matters that you return, that you get up. The righteous man falls seven times and rises again. The Lord told us we'll be hated of all. He told us 
we will suffer tribulation. We were told that our flesh would fight against us and, and we would have all of these persecutions and oppressions and these things. We were told that our sin would make us fall. We were also told what to do when it happens. Showing the mercy and the grace of God. As the Lord doesn't look at us and he does not say friend. Jesus looks at you. He does not call you friend. He calls you my child. He's a friend of sinners. He's the father of the saints. He's a friend of sinners to draw them unto himself so he could save them, change them, adopt them, and make them his own. And then he calls them my child. God is not just your friend. He's your father. He's your redeemer. He's your God. He's your savior. He's he's your counselor. He cleanses you. He washes you. He holds you. He protects you. He feeds you. He teaches you. He helps you to grow and to walk in all things. gives you the strength to stand. He's the forgiver of sins. He's the cleanser of iniquities. We see through all here, you cannot go against the scriptures. Even by your feelings of the moment of your fall and of your issue of your sin, that, that, that God is not is not going to abandon you. He doesn't hate you. He doesn't turn against you. Though our feelings can, can make us feel like that, you can't alter the scriptures. What it says is what it says, and what it says is what it means. When God says, I'll never abandon you, that means he'll never abandon you. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter if you've been arrogant in the garden. It doesn't matter if you pulled the sword and tried to alter things your own. It doesn't matter even if you have betrayed him. He calls you his child and asks that you would just repent, get up, and walk with him. He will hold nothing against you. Even if before you remember the things you've done before, even if you spat in the face of God, he will forgive you. And if you slapped him, he'll forgive you. God's grace is greater than our sin. He came for a purpose. He came for a reason. And he has a character that he, he will not betray. God has a character and a personality. He has a purpose and a reason. He has a mercy and he has grace and he has forgiveness. He has redemption that he will never betray. Our Lord, our God. Words alone cannot describe him. What he came to do and what he went through for since time immemorial. He saw you. He saw you. He called you. He spoke to you. You may have cursed him. You may have blasphemed him. You may have hated him, spat in his face, slapped his hand away. But he called you and he drew you and he showed you his mercy, his grace, and his love. And you believed on him. You may have been a troubled child. (laughs) Aren't we all? He says, I will never abandon you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Call upon me. I will answer you. It doesn't matter what you've done. I will always love you. I will always forgive you. Turn to me. 
All ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Because you see, it's not about what Peter did. And that, that, that was the problem. It was how Peter responded. To, what, to when he realized what he had done was wrong. That's what matters. For the sinner that they realize that they're a sinner and they need to be saved. And for the saved they realize what the truth is, what the path of Christ is, and that they believe and honor and serve the Lord. He will not slap your hand away. All those who come to me I will no wise cast out. The promise of our Lord Jesus Christ. All hail King Jesus. Amen. Matthew 26. So there you go. That's the end of Matthew 26. So I hope this has been a help, a comfort, and encouragement to you. If you appreciate these studies, please give this a like as a thumbs up. Make sure you subscribe, hit notification bell icon so you only put up new videos and check out all our other videos. We've got tons and tons of other goodies and content. And as well as make sure, where's my mouse? There it is. Make sure you check out christiancoffeetime.ca our website we have links to all other platforms and goodies and our podcasts and other sites as well as free downloadable gospel track pdfs and e-tracks and all that make sure you avail yourself to that and get the news out spread it around and share this video around to others as well to be an encouragement to them to help them to see uh what the word of god says as well and yeah so there we go um also fyi folks just gonna let you know uh, there'll be no broadcast tomorrow, Saturday. No broadcast tomorrow. Um, I've been called away to... There's another church that has asked me to come down and preach there on Sunday. So we've got to travel tomorrow to get down there. So it's a fair bit of a distance. So uh, there'll be no broadcast tomorrow. So I appreciate your prayers uh, for this weekend for travel safety and for Sunday. Everything go all, all good. So appreciate your prayers and supporting that. So again, just letting you know, there'll be no Saturday Q&A. All right. So with that, we'll wrap it up there. Uh, any comments that we missed? All right. I guess not. All right. So there we go. All right, folks. So with that, we're wrapped up there. So thanks so much for joining. God bless you. God bless all those who love our Lord God, Jesus Christ. God bless all those who love his holy word. Hope to see you again. And as always... If I don't see you again, I'll see you in the sky. God bless.